podcast. I'm really excited today, everyone, because we are joined today by someone from a different aspect of the real estate community, which is architecture, which is actually, I find a huge about the artistic side kind of, of actually creating these amazing houses that I get to go and see every day. So today we're joined by David Hertz, who is an architect. You have your own architect firm. Do you have a specific title? David? Uh, well, David Hertz Architects, Inc. is our company, but our studio of environmental architecture. SEA. SEA. Mm -hmm. So are you the president of the SEA? Founder, founder and uh, principal, yeah. Founder and principal of SEA. So uh, Dave Hertz uh, is actually uh, originally from Los Angeles. Yes. From Venice. Yeah, uh, born and raised Malibu and Venice. Malibu and Venice. Yeah. I find that so rare. Mm -hmm. like the amount of people in LA that we obviously sell homes to and it kind of becomes that thing of the conversation where are you from. LA is such a transient community. Uh, similar actually to London, I find, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is where I'm from originally. Right. And actually, I love drawing parallels between those two places, but we're finding more and more the amount of people that you meet, you're like, where are you from? And they say LA is becoming less and less. Yeah. Although it's interesting because for having multi generations in LA, it seems like a small town. Really? Because yeah. we still know all these people. Within our sense. within our community, yeah. So happy. even though there's a lot of other people that the, the people that are still, like I have a client now that came to me peripherally, and my father taught his mother how to swim. And, That's so yeah, funny. and then their parents bought one of my mother's you know art pieces, and so there's you know it's it's like yes of course, and then once you know them, then they're part of another community, and then you know they. Do you find that that is, because that's the weird thing that I always find coming from London to LA, is that there's people from everywhere, and definitely in my family that have lived there for a long time, they mm -hmm. know a lot of people, and so therefore you get introduced to those other generations. Right. But whenever I'm in LA, I always realise, and I think it's probably because I've moved here and I have that outside perspective, but it's almost like eight different mini-cities next to each other. Mm -hmm. They obviously work in tandem really well together, but you know, certain people that like a certain thing go and live in Silver Lake or you live in it's always you can get so many different elements when you're talking about your family and their relationships and those kinds of older generations is it area specific i.e. Venice and Santa Monica and the west side or is it across the whole of LA um, it's generally specific to the west side really? yeah. um, I mean we of course we have friends and people in Silver Lake and Echo Park and yeah. different different areas but and some are in the South Bay and Malibu but the community that you know is of my parents friends and their kids and their kids are or even going back grandparents there's generally west west side have you ever lived north west side no I've I've only lived I mean I live in Malibu and and Venice and in Westwood I lived I grew up in Homby Hills, yeah. like Little Homby, right by UCLA. How has that yeah. has that changed since you grew up there? Not that much, really. It's still bigger states. Uh, a lot of bigger states. We lived in what's called Little Homby. Yeah. Then there's like Big Homby with like Aaron Spelling and you know like the, the you know the you know the incredible palatial kind of houses, and we're in Little House, which anyone else would consider to be you know mansions. Yeah. But they're um, they're small mansions. But it's beautiful because it's right off of, of campus. And my my father, uh, he was a surgeon, and he was also a professor at UCLA. So like UCLA was our backyard growing up, but then we lived most of the summers in Malibu. Yeah. 
So he would do surgery and then also all that transition later into kind of teaching. Yeah, or both, you know, and can do both. Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah. So Westwood and then, of course, my great-grandmother lived in Venice in the 20s, so we used to come visit Venice, but Venice was very sketchy. I mean, at that, at, you know, when I was growing up in the 60s, it was very rough and dangerous. Because that's one thing I actually love. I think because when I moved from London, I'm moving from a city that's like 2,000 years old. Yeah. So when I'm selling real estate there, there's a massive variety in the age of things. And I think a lot of my friends and colleagues when I moved here, they were like, oh, well, you really enjoy the old stuff, you know, Victorian homes and that kind of thing. So how are you going to recreate that love in LA? Venice I fell in love with as soon as I walked in here. And when I started looking into like the history of it being built like a kind of Coney Island of the West Coast, mm. and then its transition from that, that to me was fascinating. Mm. So it Yeah, was, it's as you know, it's pretty close to as much history that we have in LA. I mean yeah. LA is all disposable kind of fast food architecture. Yeah. And even there's a certain simulacra with Venice that's, you know, ironic because it's just, you know, it's like, a, you know, a set. Yeah. Um, but some of the buildings are from 1905, 1915, yeah. like the arcades directly across. This is the first commercial well, street. Was building out yeah, was yeah. And, and, you know, so it, there does feel like there's still some semblance of history for us, yeah. you know, from our perspective. Um, and, and that's about as far back as, you know, we, we go. But I, I think it's fascinating because I think weirdly before when I lived in England, I always valued like the older the history almost, I thought that it was more relevant to me. Weirdly, I think it's almost the other way with that. Because now you can actually see photographs of Venice in black and white and pictures of when all the canals were there. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's almost um, more powerful because I live here and I see it day to day and I feel like that's more of a connection. Mm -hmm actually like oh just because it's older it's more important mm. i mean there's you know there's it's important to value the past and it's and it's a question of i was on the character mass and scale committee looking at you know what is neighbor character yeah. and what is historic you know or what is contributing and and at some point you if you take that logic all the way through and you take like a horrible 70s you know apartment building yeah. at some point that's going to be relevant. And as, cool. Yeah, and cool. Yeah. It's just like a car, right? I mean, at some point, that old beater is going to be cool, and and um, and but that's about as long as you know we go. The 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 opposite of that, uh, not having a tremendous historical precedence, gives one tremendous freedom yeah. creatively, which is one of the reasons that Venice Beach is 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 the kind of epicenter of creative architecture, at least was um, at its time, because there was no um, historical presence. There was nothing that was really sacred. Yeah. And everything was built not to last. I mean, it, you I know, it's a different perspective, events. right? If you're in Europe and, you know, well, that building went through wars and there were other families that, you know, generations lived there, yeah. was rebuilt, they're gonna live there after. You have a different perspective but in LA, everything is new. So every client basically is just like, you know, they want a new house or they want to tear down the old house and you just throw it away basically or recycle it. So it's it, because the whole, there was never really a long history of craftsmanship. Yeah. There's, you know, it was 
it was kind of merchant builders, you know, these like, yeah, quick. And, you know, a lot of Venice was built in adjunct to aerospace and World War, post-World War II housing was a huge areas of Venice. And then, of course, a lot of the houses were moved here, like a lot of the, anything that has any kind of character that's older likely moved here from Pasadena as like their beach house. So like we restored the 1905 Sepulveda beach house yeah. and, um, and it completely jacked it up and built a new foundation and restored it and it looks, you know, exactly how, how it was. But those houses were generally moved or were built as weekend houses. So people would take the red car to the end of Venice and yeah. then it was all canals and they, you know, they would move little craftsman bungalows or something down here. Yeah, because actually that's definitely the thing I think you see with like some of the older style bungalows is they're quite small. Mm-hmm. It isn't exactly like built like for family of four. Right. Both of them do seem like that kind of like weekend vacation kind of homes. Right. That's also another thing I so go back to actually what you were saying about how things kind of age and then they become cool after some amount of time. That when I was working in the London real estate market was almost everything. It was like as soon as when I started first selling property in uh, London, which that was end of 2011, mm-hmm. at that time, Victorian was cool. Mm. It was like, okay, well, it's a Victorian property. It was built, you know, end of the 1800s, early 1900s. It's that kind of style, even though it was almost like carbon copies. You know, you go down the streets in London, it's two up, two down, literally kind of all, uh, none of them is attached. They're all attached to each other and sitting there. And really, that was the one that everyone wanted. And it was weird because I think London had a lot of character on the streets because of the bombings of the Second World War. Mm. Whereas like one bomb would land there and it was broke up this mm. street mm. of houses mm. and then someone built at the time in the 50s, 60s, 70s, low income or cheapest to build mm. housing mm. because they hadn't got enough space. And so it's weird because when I was selling there, everyone wanted, no one wanted new really, because apparently new, which is very different from LA, everyone was brand new. There was very cool to have the 1920s style Victorian house. We didn't want you for those 50s to 70s like concrete built kind of things. Everyone thought was the most disgusting thing ever, so that would always be the last price. Now, over the last like two, three years, they're becoming cool. So Mm. people are like, oh, Mm. I like this. It's kind of Mm. like it's that retro style. Right, right. Which I always now look at it because I look at like different cities and I'm like, is that just like human nature? But it's almost like when something's new, it's cool. Then it goes through this like period of people are like, oh, actually, you know what, that was cool five years mm-hmm. ago, and then it kind of really has a second life. Almost. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's it's, but it's also planned and perceived as obsolescence in yeah. the way things are designed or the way things are marketed. But things come around. You know, everything comes around. Everything is generally a reaction to the past. Every art movement, every architecture movement, is generally a antithetical to what preceded it. Yeah. And then it comes back around as being, you know, cool eventually. Yeah. Uh, and it's often on a, about a thirty-year cycle. I worry about that side with some of the houses we see in LA mm-hmm. because obviously, like my office in Beverly Hills. And- yeah. They have a huge amount of properties that you see going up, especially in, at the moment that ten to thirty million dollar price point. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of the people that are building it, they kind of always are doing your timber structure, and that's oftentimes I look at it because I'm always thinking this isn't going to last a thousand years. Mm-hmm. 
but equally on the other side of it, we're in an earthquake zone. And so it becomes that thing of like, okay, well, it's, you know, it needs to be able to move in a certain right. way. However, we live in an area with termites, we live, and then I look at a lot of areas in Venice in the 20s, and they're built like brick. Mm -hmm. It seems like even though we've had big earthquakes over the last hundred years, they've survived mm -hmm. and kept that character. What are your thoughts from like the architecture, from the architect standpoint of, do you think that everything in LA should be built timber frame because actually earthquakes are gonna destroy what's on top of it? Or are you more of the mindset like, well, I think there's two different ways to look at it, and, and sustainability definitely comes into mind. I think you either design for disassembly yeah. or impermanence, yeah. um, in which case, you know, wood is very good in that way, definitely. or you design, or you really design for permanence. But buildings, oftentimes, architects think that buildings are done when they're done with them, yeah. but they're really just beginning the life and technology and lifestyles change and what one even thinks that the building is designed for today may be entirely different. So you look at big box stores being completely you know, inappropriate because no one contemplated the internet yeah. and now they're being repurposed into you know, all housing or different types of uses. So, you know, the pro so, you know, I think it, it, there's not one size fits all, it's what's the most appropriate solution for that. Wood, you know, wood frame is unique to our climate, our region. We don't have, you know, a lot of stone. It's not appropriate, uh, you know, to use a lot of heavy masonry in a, in a seismic zone. You know, you do have the flexibility, but it's also very easy to come apart. It's a good carbon sink. It's renewable. Yeah. Um, you know, we're adjacent to the Pacific Northwest. We used to have a lot more wood resources. If it's sustainably managed. Now most things are engineered wood products, so they're yeah. using trees much more efficiently. So, you know, wood is still a very appropriate material. It's generally mixed with steel for the added rigidity. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's just finding the appropriate material for for the right right project. Have you ever heard of any, because I was thinking about this, and actually I watched and everyone listening out there, um, David's actually done a couple of TED Talks, which you could go and check out, because actually your, I think, opinion on sustainability within the industry that you work in is awesome. So I think there's a huge amount of people, and I see it in like almost every industry that you kind of come across, is all they care about is the now, the sale, that's the thing, and actually thinking about how something's going to last, and you go into, I think, some really cool detail on that in that, mm. in those TED Talks, go check them out. But, have you ever seen someone create a building material from recycled fabric that would always have the same fluidity as wood in an earthquake situation, but you're obviously kind of repurposing something which is going to be thrown into landfill? Because that's where I, in my head, I'm like, you could build something that, yes, obviously when that's deconstructed, still, it's going to be hard to get rid of, presumably still, much more than wood is now. But if you're taking something that would be thrown into landfill, it's just going to destroy the environment, and then this structure needs to stand there, and you've got a huge amount of plastic and all of this kind of stuff that potentially could be used to kind of create someone's home. Mm. Well, you know, one of the reasons that you don't see a lot of innovation in, in the construction industry is, is, you know, it's a very, very conservative in industry. Um, there's a lot of competing forces, whether it's unions or, or you, know, co you know, it's heavily codified 
Um, and, 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 and in particular in Los Angeles, it's very challenging to accept completely innovative new building strategies or, you know, and, and these things are, are often um, very, very hard to, to implement into the market. So you, you know, you, you have, you have kind of well entrenched building methods and you have well entrenched kind of codes that test them and, and it becomes very prohibitive to try to, to go outside of that. Do you think that that is due to the fact that like people are thinking about, okay, well, we need to be very strict on that or is it the other side of like big companies lobbying to keep their interests? It's both. Really? Yeah, it's definitely both. I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's definitely pressures from unions and companies and, and, and people that are interested in keeping their jobs intact and their industries intact. That is a huge, uh, in, in every industry, that you know, is a huge deterrent to changing that. And then, and then going through also just the, you know, the building codes and things are written for certain things. Like they understand steel, but they don't really understand aluminum. You know, yeah. um, they'll, they understand wood, you know, they understand wood products. That, but if you start to develop hybrids, they, you almost have to develop the whole code on how that's going to work. And it's very, very expensive. And then you have all the op opposition. I to with work. a building material, you're probably like planning that out. How does that last in 10 years? How does that last in 20 years? And then you're kind of having to take it through a 20 years. Well, you do accelerated aging testing and so forth, but there's a lot of, I, I invented a building material um, and I, I had a company for 20 years, it was called Syndicrete, and it was a, one of the first kind of, um, it was an advanced cement based composite made out of post-consumer recycled materials. I think you mentioned that in your Yeah, it was very innovative and, and I, you know, I, I, so I know how hard it is to implement even a non-structural you know building material yeah. but we did so and I sold it to a large public company in 2006 um, so it was, it was successful um, and some of the things I've spoken about on one of the TED talks is about radical reuse and repurposing and yeah. my um, 747 wing house in Malibu was a, was about how do we rethink the way that we usurp raw materials you know if we if we're making Aluminum, for instance, we're clear-cutting rainforest to mine bauxite and shipping it around the world several times in the, to process it, and then it ends up in an airplane in the desert that's yeah. going to get melted down and made into a beer can again. So it's downcycled. So how can we upcycle it and or reuse it? Yeah. It was already engineered to to achieve a tremendous strength and judicious use of materials, and it's you know, why turn it into a, a, a beer can? So, so the idea that we employed there was it's a large, less strategy, meaning a huge piece, but less transport yeah. because it's a very remote site. So we don't bring in pieces that are way the buildings are normally built. You look at wood frame building or even masonry building, there are thousands of disparate pieces, none of which fit. Yeah. And then a whole heap, about 30% of it, which is scrap, which has to be transported away which has embodied yeah. energy and the transport cost. So that on average is 30%? Yeah, about 30% uh, construction crazy. demolition waste. Every piece of drywall that's not exactly 4 by 8 every stud, you know, it's just... So they're taking yeah. ages off, cutting yeah, the corner. Just, right. 
and oh. and then you're then you're cutting it all up to put the infrastructure through the electrical and plumbing, and then you're you know applying all these. So there's tremendous amounts of C and D waste both in the construction, but also you know since so much there's very few empty lots left in yeah. in in LA. So you're you're inherently gonna going to buy something with something on it, and then Destroy. the reality is is that once you start kind of unraveling this thing, it everything's tied to it. So you, you quickly find that it's far more expensive generally to keep something yeah. than just to tear it out and yeah. start with a clean slate and, and and then not having like half of an engine, you know, rebuilt or something, you know, where oh, you know, the electrical yeah, is yeah, nice. it's got old electrical and new electrical and old plumbing and new plumbing and old framing and so and then structurally you kind of just want to build it new yeah. because you don't want to have like an old piece next to a new piece moving around differently. So what typically happens is these remodel projects, if they're somewhat extensive, is they rapidly kind of make sense just to start new. And then once you're starting new, everybody is really about, which is, you know, what the banking industry is about, what the real estate industry about is, you know, highest and best use and yeah. max it out and comps and, and so you, you have this kind of, this desire often for um, quantity over quality or size, you know, over, over you know, really architecture. We, we exist a little bit outside of real estate because real estate is the commodification, you know, of, of it. But yeah. we're interested in the art or the, you know, the design really of architecture is separate from that now it works well I think good architecture often sells mm -hmm. at a very good price I mean hence my Californication house or other projects that I've done have all achieved you know records you know by my multiples in Venice because people you know that some people appreciate architecture and quality mm -hmm. um, you well, know. I think that, that to me is something that I think is going to play out massively over the next 10 years especially in the luxury market of LA Really now, when I'm going around and I'm having a look at some of the options for the buyer who's spending considerable amount of money, you know, ten million dollars plus on a home, there is definitely a trend of like I think some developers saw okay, this glass box obviously makes the best of the views, and this is sold, this is sold, this is sold, but it's become a situation where there's like twenty five thousand on the market that is valid, and there's no real like artistic thought or soul that's kind of gone mm. into it. It's just oh, well, that one did well, so let's copy it and let's mm -hmm. just try and kind of sure. do that. Yeah, because I think it's largely based on, on commerce and, and you know, this, this, this kind of conservative bet, you yeah. know, especially, if, but that's, that's understandable as a developer. Yeah. Um, and you're going to want to be conservative to go with what the market, so it's self-fulfilling, as you're saying, because yeah. what sells and it sets, like, the trend and then that's what other people follow. Yeah. Um, we've always been like setting the trend, not, yeah. not, you know, copying the trend and, but our, but we've never been consciously trying to set a trend. What we've been really interested in is how do we make a building that's really of its place, that's ideally timeless, that uses natural materials, that takes advantage of views, and natural light and, and natural ventilation and has a, a, a a contemporary but a warm feel yeah. and um, when I first started in you know 1983 and it's been you know 38 years 
I, a lot of what I was doing was very innovative at the time, and now it's much more mainstream. And yeah, I mean, nobody had four-place concrete counters, nobody had concrete floors or board form walls, radiant heating or solar, or natural ventilation, exposed, you know, framing and So is that cool timbers. to see that kind of evolution over your career of like 39 years, that's where we were and this is where it is now? Or do you kind of feel just constantly, things are just changing? Yeah, I mean, we're, it's, it's, it's harder because, because when, when I started, there, it, it was it was far more innovative, yeah, and and I feel like I have to continue to innovate, yeah, because otherwise, what's to differentiate my thing from somebody that's copying it, yeah, and and so then I you know I can't just do another one like that because then it's just derivative, that's even though one of my yeah, have you ever been asked to or thought about doing other things? Oh, I have been asked, yeah, yeah sure but I'm asked. trying to keep it as a, you know, unique, unique piece of artwork. Yeah, unique piece of artwork. I've had different people. We had uh, one of the, um, the you know, princes of Saudi Arabia land his helicopter there, you know, right. and take a tour and, you know, interested. We had somebody else who had a fleet in Malaysia, literally like a dictator in Malaysia, who was like, you know, um, wanted to do something. You know, we, we just, that was... What makes it unique was that it was innovative and appropriate for its time and its place, not you know a product that we're going to reproduce. With the like recycle side, because I remember when I first saw press about that, I think I wasn't that at the time kind of aware of how light planes are built and the, the fact that they carry a lot of fuel in their wings. And actually, mm. so I was thinking, in an earthquake zone, when you've got this massive wing sitting above kind of like a glass facade, that mm. seems to me like it would work. Then I was thinking, how stupid are you? They're building a plane to fly, and therefore it's the lightest material you possibly get hold of. And it's actually built in a way where it's kind of exactly that streamlined for air and all those kinds of things. Mm. And I think when I watched your tech talk, I saw almost a couple of shots of how many planes are just sitting out there mm. collecting dust mm. and just rotting away in the desert. Yeah. Is there never been anyone who's like, okay, I need to start this as a business idea? You know, all I do is kind of produce, and obviously that does take away from your art and mm. concept. But I'm surprised that no one's kind of. But the, the transportation of that way, I presume. Yeah, I mean, one has to be very kind of creative and innovative and, again, convince the building departments, you know, of the structural properties. You're, you don't, you're not always able to get the structural properties because it's proprietary or a matter of national security. Okay. After 9-11, in particular, we were visited by Homeland Security. Really? Um, we had to deal with the FAA, so it's not called into the downed aircraft site. So there are like a lot of factors, but you know, we've done houses out of tilt-up concrete. Um, we've done them out of refrigeration panels and prefabric. I've got a house, well, it's like more of an eco-resort um, with a house um, on the island of Beckway and St. Yeah. Vincent and the Grenadines. And yeah, yeah, being, yeah. being a Brit, you know it. Yeah. And nobody else seems to really know yeah, where it is. And it's so kind of almost like a British colony and my clients are from London. Um, and I have an amazing project that we are completing now. It's at the top of this island. It's just spectacular views. Looks out at Mustique and down the chain and, and um, literally the whole top of the island. But it's super integrated into the jungle and it's all prefabricated. Everything is extruded aluminum built in Java and, and, in, and throughout Indonesia and Bali. We bought a pier in Borneo 
uh, ironwood. We extruded our own aluminum sections. It all flat packed in containers, so there's no emptiness. Why is one of those containers in uh, well, the containers are just carrying the stuff. Okay. We're not using. Like if, if one of the containers was damaged, the point where the stuff inside is. Oh well, pretty, like, it, it would just be redone. Down. I mean, okay. you know, they, they move stuff around the world every day in hundreds of, you know, thousands, not millions of containers. So that we didn't have any damage, and um, you know, everything is flat packed. So it's you know, columns and beams and hollow aluminum section. Yeah. So it was basically built like a giant sailboat. In fact, the roofs are all high tensile fabric. They, so there's a series of tents that are coming out of the jungle that have huge spans that move with wind and, and hurricanes that collect rainwater on top of them, collect them in the columns that are like sailboat mast. Then they have the old ironwood you know, deck that's hundreds of years old off the pier in Borneo as the floor and all the aluminum is wrapped with old wood and then um, you know, beautiful natural surfaces. So it's like being on an old wooden yacht of old, you know, teak, ironwood, stainless steel and fabric in, um, you know, in the jungle. And, and, uh, and then it has all of these amazing sustainable features in the way in which it self, you know, generates its own water, collects its own water, makes its own energy. Um, so has natural ability. Yeah. Really? Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that remote location, I presume, I suppose, mm -hmm. in that remote location, now more and more people are probably looking at solar in terms of not building in power lines and that kind of thing. Right. So obviously, that's going to be the right. same way of doing it. Mm -hmm. But actually, William, my mother in law, so actually, they sold this house last year, but there's an island in Boca Grande in Florida, mm -hmm. it's on the Gulf side. Mm -hmm. So it was an old uh, property that they inherited, actually, I think. A crown and shield residence. Mm. So it was like really old American family which mm. ship weaponry and uh, wow. oil up there. Mm. Incredible hand carved room in the middle, but the whole thing was kind of falling apart. Mm. So she actually redid it to the highest green standards, and I'm sure now that's probably six years ago, and now mm. it changed a lot, but it was carbon neutral. Mm -hmm. And it felt exactly as you're saying that to me, like true in my head, where it doesn't need to be, oh, well, this element's old, therefore it needs to be kept old. You can kind of keep the old recycled and artistic elements mm -hmm. and bring up the rest of the house in a way where there's not that juxtaposition. Mm -hmm. They actually fit well together. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping that that becomes more and more the way that people are looking at building houses, especially at that kind of price point. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone's creating something that they put a huge amount of time and effort and money into, that they kind of are actually thinking, right, well, this, how is this going to stand for the next hundred years, mm -hmm. thousand years that it's going to be here? Right, or, you know, how can it be modified, you know, to accommodate what's going to happen within yeah. that period of time? Definitely. You know, so that it just becomes a kind of shell. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where you have to either design for buildings to learn and change, you know, yeah. over time, ideally, you know. But here in L.A., it's very temporal, and, you know, there's, it's very analogous to kind of Hollywood and set building and just you throw something up and most of it is all just facade and, and superficial style. It's if, yeah. it's if it's Tudor, it's like, why is it here? I mean, yeah. you know, in, in England, you know, it's, you know, the roofs were there to shed snow and yet it was cold and the windows were small and yeah. you didn't have big sheets of glass. So they were divided, you know, it's like, in, in, if it's real, yeah. It has integrity because yeah. it was a building that came about 
of its place and of the technology and of the materials that were appropriate at yeah. that time. But now we, we exist in this, this, this kind of, you know, kind of synthetic world, especially here, where it's, it's anything that you want it to be. So it's just style. And style is just facade. And then, you know, most of them are basically just tract houses. And they're built like that. And people don't really have the sensibility as clients generally because they haven't really seen architecture and they haven't really had architecture. And if, if, you've, if you've grown up in Europe and, you know, you've seen a cathedral or you've seen, you know, something, you, you know, you're, it, it's, you're, you're more ingrained to, to understand the provenance of that or the yeah. material, but if you if you've only seen shopping centers and mini malls and tract houses, then you know you just know drywall. Yeah, you know? I like and, columns that. Yeah, columns yeah. In front of my house but are, you know, perhaps today it's it's different because there's so much available, like with Pinterest and House yeah. and Dwell and all you know all these accessible things that clients yeah. have never had more you know abundant resources to, yeah. to kind of source things. But that is a massive difference, actually, now you're saying that between London and LA, and I'm sure a lot of the US markets, is you don't recreate old architecture there. You don't right. copy Victorian. Right. Or it's done very occasionally, and people, it puts a bad taste in people's mouth. It's almost like you're building of today's architecture. Mm -hmm. If you want to buy something that's old or whatever it is, then you're kind of, you know, you're buying the old thing, mm -hmm. and you're renovating the inside, keeping as much cash mm -hmm. as you possibly yeah. But that's, yeah, I'm always thinking about that. It's quite a weird, because yeah, I see like Spanish revival homes going up, and obviously I realize there's a huge amount of kind of Spanish influence and Mexican and that kind of side of where we are in the world. But, um, and I do like it when it's actually done well in that minimalist kind of style with terracotta roofs mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But there is, when I'm walking around it and it's new construction, I'm kind of a little bit like, yes, I like the style, but this is a copy, this isn't the original right. thing. Right, right. I mean, it, 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 it starts to become more and more absurd when you, you know, when you look at so many of the styles that have nothing to do with that, with, with this. I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright created the first Amer uniquely American architecture. You know, we all were colonists and we came here and all we knew was were Tudor or Colonial or, you know, Palladian or whatever. So we just started to just reproduce that. Now, if you're on the East Coast, then some of those things actually have history, yeah. even though they're just, you know, a couple hundred years old versus, you know, the real ones. Um, but you come out West, that's where the last to, but also, you know, to, to really have the migration were the newest, but also the people by and large that came here were probably more visionary. So, you know, what, what became really part of LA's architecture were, were the Europeans that fled the Nazis that came here, like Schindler and Neutra, yeah. and, and even, you know, um, Wright coming out here, and then a kind of next generation of, like, Gregory Ain, and, you know, the case study houses, and Eames, and then, you know, Ray Cappy, and Lautner, and yeah. so, and then, of course, Frank Geary, and then, you know, we kind of come in you know, somewhere in between, like Morphosis and then, and then, and then my generation, there, you know, there's a lineage, and there, you know, it's a fairly short history in the scheme of things, but mm -hmm. it's all been pushing the boundaries and it being more innovative than really anywhere else, generally, Definitely. because there wasn't a historical precedence, yeah. there wasn't value to keeping something, there wasn't a context that you had to relate to, and everything was, was, you know, kind of a simple simulacra in the first place so 
what what is beautiful about Venice is the eclectic nature of it. Is a tiny bungalow next to a contemporary house, yeah. next to an apartment building. You know what what will be the ruination of Venice if it's not you know pre preserved is that is that character in some sense. Like not every bungalow should be torn down because then there's nothing to create an eclecticism. And if every building is a you know, two-story contemporary box that's done in the cheapest way by a developer to make a buck, then you kill the thing that has character in the first place. And that that's also something that is analogous to the way that like retail works. It's analogous to the way nature works with a well-stocked, you know, pond, yeah. is that you have an abundant food source, you have an uh, algae bloom, and then everything yeah, dies. So you can, can't look at countless retail streets or, or areas that are cool because generally the creative class go go in because they can't afford the other areas they make gentrify it in a way before the real gentrifiers they make it edgy and cool and then everyone else kind of follows and then they ruin the thing that is cool and then all those cool people the originators leave and they go to another area so you look at you know, Venice was populated by people that had nowhere else to go. You know, you go as far west before you can fall in the ocean, so you get everything that's loose and crazy and, yeah. you know, everything that, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright used to say, if you take a map of the United States and fold it and lift it up on the East Coast, everything loose rolls all the way to the West Coast, <laughs> you know. And, and here they are on the Venice boardwalk, where yeah. we're at the edge. Um, so there's really nowhere else to go. Um, and sometimes people, you know, come into the community and they're like, well, we want to freeze this moment in yeah. time. Like, we want it now. Or like, I've lived here for three years and I remember how the way it is and I don't want anyone else to, you know, build a big house because, yeah. you know, I have mine, and but I don't want to ruin the bungalow next door. And it's a question of at what point do you freeze it yeah. to where, you know, it's, it is, you know, appropriate. And, and, the only thing that I know certainly about Venice is that 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 uh, the, the only constant is change. Yeah. So it's it's organic. It's changing. It's trying. You know, it's gone through waves of developers. It's gone through waves of apartments. It's gone through waves of you know anti-building and then you know rebuilding and you know. So at some point, with having some perspective of of, of several decades of it, I'm a little less. Like, oh, it has to be this way, or you have to do it. You know? yeah. But at the same time, I, I don't want to see things completely destroyed um, to where we can't undo that in, yeah. the, in, the, in the future. I think that was definitely a thought that I, I was having, actually, probably about a year ago. And I think it's, it's been less and less, but it was definitely a case when, when I first came to LA, I think 2009, was when I first visited. I just met my wife in South Africa, who was my wife at the time, on a surf trip arrived in LA and she at the time was going to the Fashion Institute mm -hmm. downtown. Mm -hmm. So I get off the plane and I'm staying with her. I'm like, this is not the LA that I know as being. You know, like, oh, I see Hollywood and I see the films and mm -hmm. I see Lords of Dolltown and like some cool things about these different areas of LA. In 2009, downtown just felt very much like a concrete box, mm -hmm. jungle kind of mm -hmm. thing, where it was kind of good during the day and she was quite close to the Staples Center so you'd see people, but everyone at 6 p.m. left and went back to where they lived. So I was like, what is going on? Literally the first weekend when she wasn't working, came to Venice and I was like, oh my God. Like, I don't know what it was, but it really hit me. Mm. Like, I didn't necessarily think all of LA was like this, but I loved it because it just felt genuine and true mm. that people mm -hmm. were there. 
after I moved here in 2000, sorry, start of 2015, it became a little bit of a situation where I was seeing Snapchat emerge and like all these big companies. And when I first discovered it, it was the kind of bit more dangerous, but it's on the coast, it's mm -hmm. south of Santa Monica, so you can get things for a bit better price. But it was almost like the uniqueness of Venice wasn't seen as that cool. Whereas it just seems the last like five, six years has been everyone's like, oh my god, you know, you can buy whatever you want in Beverly Hills or whatever it is, but if you want genuine kind of walking down the street, seeing complete mix of different people, different architecture, being on the ocean, mm -hmm. which for me is like if I'm living on the coast, I'm going to get as close to the ocean mm -hmm. as possibly can. But that was a little bit of a worry because I was kind of thinking, okay, well now you've got a big company like Snapchat, and no anti-Snapchat or anything like that, but obviously it's kind of put out there into the world that everyone then is coming out like, oh, this is cool. And people would almost dress in the Venice kind of flamboyant style, not because that's what they actually wanted to do, it was to copy something that they saw was kind of a mm. cool thing. And mm. I was really worried that Venice would just become, Santa Monica would just extend mm. down mm. the coast. Mm. But it does seem like, um, and I think there's an element of that, which is the tourism and Venice Beach Boardwalk, I think it's the second biggest tourist attraction mm -hmm. in Southern California. Next to Disney, yeah. Yeah, and so it kind of seems that I hope that people come here because they actually want to experience it, not mm -hmm. copy it and change it into just being a Disneyland. Yeah, I think that's always the struggle. Um, is, I mean, Venice is a really unique community. I mean, it was definitely a, kind of a ghetto by the sea. I mean, it has, but it, you know, it is changing and it has gentrified and some of that gentrification is good, you yeah. know, and, and some of it is not so good. And it's, I guess the question is finding the right balance for that. But I, what I've always loved in Venice, I, I moved here in 76. Um, as I said, I was here in the 60s. I, you know, I, I, I used to go to POP when it was open. You know, I went, I, it closed on my sixth birthday. Um, you know, I grew up skating and surfing, you know, in Venice and all, all the, you know, I grew up with all the guys from Dogtown and right. all, all, you know, um, in my, in my high school, my age group and, and, uh, community watched, you know, it changed with architecture. I worked with Frank Geary on the boardwalk, right. you know, um, worked with a lot of artists. I, you know, this street, Market Street, I worked with Jean-Michel Basquiat right next door. I, I worked with... All the light and space artists with Dwayne Valentine, with Robert Graham, with John McCracken, with Arnoldi, um, you know, they're, um, you know, amazing kind of group of, of artists creative and creative people. Yeah. And, you know, I, my, my position of Snapchat was, since they were next door, was that, well, you know, they're creatives, potentially creatives too, at this time, it's just a different medium. Um, but I think that it, it, it ultimately became a monoculture because it, they took over too much, too fast, and didn't really understand Venice. And they, you know, were were not. There was not really a social mix. It right. was like people were afraid of like homeless people or other people, and you know, there was like security, and so they created a lot of tension in the community, and it definitely changed the the character of Venice. And yeah. you know, I think Venice is better off with less Snapchat as much as, you know, I was kind of for creativity and diversity. I, I, I think that it, it, when no, you have no, a monoculture, yeah. it's too too big. And, you know, they came in, took up, I think it was like 176,000 square feet of real estate and then just left, you know, leaving a lot of that 
real estate vacant. I'm gonna say like next door, I think Solar is in yeah. but actually that was looking like that was gonna be vacant for a while. So they were like trying to sublease a lot of that space. Yeah, they had long leases, and they were still, you know, had leases, but yeah. they were trying to sublease out or sell. Um, so you know, it's just, it, but, but that's just another blip, you know, in the in the history of things. It's like all Silicon Beach and you know all that, and a lot of a lot of you know, these just kind of faux hipsters and, yeah. you know, grifter type of, you know, people. Yeah. But I've had an attitude of acceptance because I'm like, you could go look on sidewalks, you know, from the 60s that were like, you know, uh, yuppies get out of Venice or hippies get out of Venice or, well, you know. Oh, yeah, POP, yeah. Um, so it's always, it's always been like that. So I think, you know, once you have some history behind you, you know, even if our history is new, you have a little bit more accepting, not everybody, but I have a little bit more accepting attitude. It's like, hey, well, we're all just passing through yeah. and there's dynamics and, and sometimes there's tensions. And but that is, I think that is a really refreshing attitude because I think there's a huge amount of people like me, especially in our industry, who, well, it wasn't like this in my day. And they have this kind of tie onto it in some odd kind of romantic way, which I can completely kind of understand because I have that mm -hmm. in certain elements in my life. But it definitely always seems odd that people have such an issue with change. Mm -hmm. um, change is threatening. Yes, yeah. change is threatening to people, and um, and and you know the, the the people like things you know the way they are because that's safe and. When it when when it changes, it puts unpredictability into it. And I think the thing about Venice, and, and you know, the most ardent um, um, kind of anti-growth person, I um, you know I, I I appreciate them because as much as the person trying to do something, because everybody, if they really love Venice and they care about it, and they're willing to, willing to fight for it, you know. It, it, it starts to become limiting when when somebody starts to say, well, we need to develop a style or a certain character that's uniform because that is anti-Venice. Yeah. You know, doing yeah. individual things, right? I mean, it's like Venice is a place where you kind of are allowed to do anything. Everyone's accepted. Yeah, yeah that should be the spirit. And so the architecture should be incredibly eclectic. And, yeah. you know, the multiple things that create a, a, a kind of uniform aesthetic of a time, I think is is somewhat problematic. Definitely. Changing the fabric of and the granularity of the community. So how do you with that then? Are you when you're sitting here right now, do you find that you have thoughts about what you think Venice will look like in twenty years, or do you just kind of think, you know, what it's going to be, what it is going to be? Yeah, I kind of think of it as a living organism that's going to go through changes. It's going to be affected by economies yeah. and, and people and. I, that there's, but there's, you know, there's, there, there are, you know, there, there's like a recession which just, you know, really retrenched, and then coming out of the recession, there was even more of a concern about gentrification because there was a lot of pent up yeah. desire to build, and then you had a lot of developers coming in to capitalize on, you know, a kind of disadvantaged community to get a good buck, and Oakwood in particular which has historically, you know, um, been an African-American community. Yeah. And um, 
and it had a lot of ethnic and, and, and economic diversity, it was particularly hard hit. And, you know, developers would come up and they'd buy three or four lots in, in a row and then build a big, you know, block. That changes the character, you know, that, that puts people in shade. It divides up, much like you're saying the bombing did. Yeah. So, you know, then, then what tends to happen is if one person, you know, builds a big two-story box, and blocks all their shade, then they're like, okay, well, I might as well join them, then I'll build my two-story one, and then, you know, it just keeps going down the line. And the industry is, is in, you know, generally encouraging that. I have several clients that are looking to buy and have bought, you know, old little bungalows just for the purposes of preserving them. Right. And, you know, and we've restored several of them and, and uh, or move, even moved them. We're working on... Uh, the Venice Historic uh, Foundation, or Venice Heritage Foundation, you know, in front of the library uh, off Abikini and, yeah. and Venice Boulevard. It's not happening right now, but I mean, we've we've designed and per permitting for relocating a, an old house bungalow there and putting a red car there and yeah. having a little museum about Venice. Um, so we have we have done that. I'm working on. At, the opposite end, I'm working on the largest project in Venice, which is a hotel, yes. you know, off of Abikini on Electric, which has been, you know, we've been working with for five years to, you know, but it's all about the preservation of all of the character of the existing and then building over the parking lot and then trying to make that building look like it's always been there mm -hmm. and really like using the alleyways and making a courtyard. And, what Venice doesn't have is a is really a good hotel that you know opens to the community, and it's actually what what is part of the coastal plan is to have visitor overnight yeah. serving accommodations, but an outdoor living room that you know that you could have your family or friends stay, and it helps even with some of the tensions around um, you know Airbnbs and illegal yeah. rentals to have a legit place. Well, I'm you know I'm all for kind of free property rights, but not when they impinge on, on your neighbors. So, you know, there needs to be some regulation and there is being, that, that's being dealt with. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. uh, that's the weird thing, because I always found out on both sides of that, where if I own something, mm -hmm. I don't like being told what I can and can't do with it, especially mm -hmm. if it's kind of like providing service for other people. Yeah. However, I live in the community and I have noticed definitely does become a bit of a situation, obviously we're a big tourist hub and a big tourist city, but when people can monetize their property for that much money, they can kind of decide actually, you know what, we're just going to rent that out constantly. And so it does become a weird situation where everyone you're meeting on the street, no one actually lives here. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. No, it does. It does change the community and people are less respectful of their neighbors if yeah. they're not, not really neighbors. Definitely. And, um, and you know, there's there's been you know some abuses where you know people or even large companies you know buy up lots of properties and then you know lease them out. And or so, lease them and sublease them, which is even worse. Yeah. So you know, it needs some control. Yeah. And I, I think you know, from what I understand, the ordinances will allow you, you to rent your primary residence, and you don't have to be on premises like you do in Santa Monica, which is you know particularly limiting. So this seems to strike a reasonable balance that would keep serial, um, you know, serial, biz, you know, uh, you know, Airbnb type rental rental companies that have multiple ones, and that way the 
the homeowner is still has a neighbor they have to speak to and yeah. they, they still have to you know have fewer of them and they're going to manage them better so i think it will ultimately integrate well but you know this is a case in point who would have contemplated uber and airbnb yeah. you know it, it totally changed the fabric or scooters you know they just like show up one day and you know these things are happening at such a fast pace now that yeah. so how do you design a building that's supposed to you know keep up with the pace yeah. of change which is happening with more rapidity and i think looking at the ones that you've done the way you do that really well is uniqueness each project is not like a copy of anything it's kind of like this is its own for its own kind of unique way mm -hmm. and that i think stands the test of time pretty mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. because even if it's oh not my style i think people appreciate that thing that's had that amount of thought and like Yeah, I mean, they come more as an artistic expression of what I'm trying to do with architecture as art yeah. and, and or interested in the kind of the way it's built or yeah. that's why I'm interested in one house is a wing house, one house is tilt up concrete, one's refrigeration, one's made out of fabric and aluminum um, because I'm interested in kind of the, you know, not repeating myself. And yeah. even now, since I did Californication House, you know, which kind of represented a personal style based on a kind of Bali modern meets kind of Schindler, you know, amalgam of just, you know, what, what felt like my personal aesthetic and, and, and influence other aesthetic. Now I live, you know, in, I live in a 600 square foot little bungalow in Oakwood, um, but I have a, a big ranch in Malibu. Um, and it's this old historic movie ranch. My grandfather had come to Malibu in the 40s and he built Paramount Ranch. And the Western town was burned down recently. The Wolfie yeah. Fire. My brother and I are working with the National Park Service on the rebuilding efforts. Um, but I have a property that Tony Duquette, who is the only American to ever have a solo show at the Louvre, um, built. He was head of MGM. He was nominated for 26 Academy Awards, won six things like Gone with the Wind and yeah. King and I. And so. A lot of what he did was bring the sets from the King and I and Anne and the King of Siam yeah. up to this incredible property at the furthest end of the Santa Monica Mountains where it dives into the sea above Point Magoo and um, built a fantasy land, you know, where big Hollywood celebrities of the time could kind of come and, you know, be free and dress in costumes and just have these amazing things. So it's otherworldly and so I've been, you know, a steward of it. And, recently and restoring it and um, and it's just you know it, it's really quite a, a, a fantasy that's the other like element I find that I'm really drawn to I think coming from London is like the Hollywood history side mm -hmm. right? it's always broadcast over to the world over the last hundred years and it's become like I remember touring one I think in Holy Hills where it was literally one of those run down but massive kind of estates built in the 20s um, and found a hidden door in it mm -hmm. that was in one of the closets that led down to an old speakeasy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and had Charlie Chaplin's signature on the yeah, inside. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. So I was like, oh my God, this is incredible to yeah. do that. So when you were a kid, sorry if this changed the subject mm -hmm. slightly, did you always think I want to be an architect? Well, I when I was, um, I mean, I was always curious about how things were made. I mean, I, you know, my mom said I used to like, take apart the vacuum cleaner, you know, and just take it all apart, 
And like then you it was, no, I couldn't quite put it back together. <laughs> that was a problem. But I was curious about taking them apart and figuring them out. Um, and you know, my dad being he he was a, a surgeon, but he was also very creative, and he was a sculptor and author. My mom was an artist, so I. I mean, I grew up very fortunate in that kind of creative environment, yeah. and I was very interested in making things. And um, and I worked in construction, and I worked for different artists, and I worked for craftsmen, and and and, and then so in about junior high, I mean, I we used to race bicycles. You know, it's like the birth of BMX, and I used to build all my own bicycles. We made all of our own skateboards. You know, there was Solving no skateboard. Well, I uh, just made them for ourselves. I, I rode professionally, you know, at a young age and BMX, and I used to make like side hacks and bicycles, and I used to weld them all out of aluminum square tube and make you know machine off stuff. And it was much more of an era of industrial arts and hand drafting and figuring things out. So painting, doing that kind of side as well, it was always kind of physical creation. All physical, yeah. yeah. I've never really done too much on the, the painting painterly side. It's all been three dimensional. So when you're creating at home now and you're kind of looking at what you're gonna do, what is is there a favorite part of the process? You enjoy the entire thing? Because I presume creating on paper is something. Uh, I still I still sketch. I mean, I still trace. I mean, that's 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 mainly what I do is I kind of sketch out floor plans and things and and, and, and trace and then I work with staff to kind of put it in the computer and then we quickly get into 3D models and we start looking at that and what's been really fun for our office has been um, virtual reality. So we do we do all of our design in virtual reality. So I'll spend hours you know, like looking at that corner and I could redline and mark up in 3D virtual reality space. Because that's the case that I saw you with the eyes yeah. here. Yeah. Actually, I was really going to bring my own because mm. I've got one of those, the Quest, the new mm -hmm. Facebook one. Because mm. so I think where I am is I'm very drawn to technology, how it changes human beings uh, from day to day life, like mm -hmm. Uber and mm -hmm. scooters. And I'm always fascinated by that. That's why I actually get drawn to it. So imagine in my office if I had 10 experience mm -hmm. pods, 
and every listing that I had, I mapped it for VR. Mm -hmm. The client can come in, they can draw a hundred properties in an hour mm -hmm. and just go to the next one, go to the next one. We'll actually set aside their top five yeah. and go see those in real life. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. But yeah. then I also think that human beings, we, as we were talking about earlier, like we, we see the change and there's a lot of us that hold on to, I don't want to do it that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. I, I talked to my dad about this sometime. He's on Instagram and Facebook mm -hmm. all the time. And two years ago, I was talking to him like, hey, you need to get an iPhone, you need to do an Instagram. He's like, I've got a Blackberry. Mm. I don't mm -hmm. need this. I like being able to type mm -hmm. on a keyboard and mm -hmm. lose that. And like, I kind of constantly, whenever he like makes a point like, oh no, that's going to be different, I'm always reminding him of that kind of thought. Mm -hmm. In the moment, yeah. You yeah, I mean, he, he, he made the leap to get onto a Blueberry, <laughs> a Blackberry. Um, that, that was a pretty big technological leap. You, you know, you, you can get better. You, you yeah, know, you've exactly. had a good experience with that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think virtual reality is going to change a lot of things and, and certainly I think in real estate it's going to be a huge driver. There's, uh, you know, I mean, people should be able to do virtual tours, yeah. not waste a lot of people's time and then of course go see the real thing, but, but you know, you could waste so much time and whatever they, they don't like, you know, the color of the wallpaper or whatever that, you know, they don't like. Uh, that's just a waste of time. Yeah. So, um, I mean, think about this actually, as well, like, taking this to the next level, because you just said, hey, you know, you had the Californication house because you were living in that before yeah. you sold it. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that was a double lot, 5,000 mm -hmm. square foot yeah. house. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you had a lot of space and kind of weirdly in my head now, I'm kind of thinking as the VR goggles become like contact lenses and if that takes 15 years or whatever it is, do people stop valuing? actual four walls there inside, mm. i.e. do I live in a room smaller than this or mm. half this size and when I get home I flip my contact lenses or I put on my headset or whatever it is or I get in a pod and then I'm living the life in the mansion that I dreamed I would right. and how does the human being value virtual reality as mm. opposed to actual reality and does that do you know what I mean? like no, there's definitely a confluence. I mean, there, you know, the, the, I, I think that we will get to that point where, where you know, you could be in a very small space yeah. with increased density and make any view you want, you know, at any time and any experience you want at any time, which is much better than anything you could build in the physical. So. Yeah. Um, and, and if it's comfortable, you know, to, to wear, like you're saying, like a contact or something that's not cumbersome, yeah. why wouldn't you do that? I mean, a lot of, like my kids, you know, the generation, I mean, they, 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 they live often in, in game space. Yeah. And, you know, all my employees are on computers all day long in virtual spaces um, designing them. But, but you, you, you know, Given the confluence of technology and the ability to to be almost anywhere at any time, that's why you're saying people don't need to go into an office. I mean, yeah. and 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 I think it's just gonna gonna offer more freedom. I mean, if you, I was doing some work with pods and virtual reality space with Deepak Chopra yeah. um, for office environments, so that if you're you know whatever you're at Google, you're stressed and you're you know, in a cubicle, yeah. and then you just kind of go into this pod, and you're in a meadow with the stars and the, you know, the, the, the trees rustling, and all of a sudden, you know, Deepak Chopra comes and does gives you a guided, you know, meditation. Um, 
you know, you, you have had an experience. I mean, you're, every part of your body and your mind has had that experience. Just yeah. like when your mother, you know, took off the head, the jarring, you know, the headset because you now you're in a different space. Like you were, you were believing in. I, I spend time, I'm, I go to lean on the, the virtual wall or put my elbow yeah. on the table. It's like, you know, you forget, your, your mind forgets. What about disorientation? Because that is something that I find sometimes that I get with it, is if I'm, if I'm playing or I'm doing something with a VR headset, and I'm so very new to it, but it sounds like you've been using it mm. for a while, if I switch my vision left or right, I literally don't feel it in, like, it's almost like airline sickness. Kind yeah, of thing. yeah, I get the same thing. I do. But that's just the technology is not yet yeah. accommodating for the movement. But it will. And then I saw actually the other day they do some studies where they're putting the VR headset on someone who's getting like blood taken, or and they're basically measuring the stress levels within the person. Mm -hmm. They're not seeing that being right, put in sure. another that makes perfect sense. environment. Yeah. Yeah. Even other things like I'm designing an aquarium for Heal the Bay on the San Juan Pier. Yeah. And it's like a water museum, and so you know, on the pier, actually kind of above pier level. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And. You know, I'm really advocating, like, we don't need a lot of static displays that you have, you know, like, if you want to go underwater yeah. and see a kelp forest, you know, you just put on virtual reality glasses, like, you know, we're never going to make, like, an incredible aquarium, but, you know, you can start to, and then you have the ability to change the content and, yeah. you know, and have so much more, so, Variety you know, I, I think, yeah, and, 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 you know, our clients, I mean, of all age groups, um, really respond to the virtual reality. And I think what happens for us is that ideally people aren't making as many changes in the space because actually seeing it under construction and seeing it finished is anticlimactic because they've already seen it and yeah. experienced it. So they're not like, oh, there's a window there or, you know, because for so many decades, you know, you, you know, I see the plans, like I'm completely inside the space and the client sometimes is like, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it, yeah, I like it, go, you know, and we try to build a physical model, and, you know, but then when they walk out there, they're, they're literally, is there a window there? Or I didn't realize the ceilings were this height or, so it really helps and I think that it will also be something in construction that, you know, it, it, along with augmented reality where you should just be able to hold your iPhone up and see the detail, you know, or, or, or run a dimension, you know, it's already starting to happen. So I think with augmented reality, you'll be able, and virtual reality, I think it, it is really going to be transformative to the industry. And I, 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 I know that, that realtors, you know, are middle, you know, they're, they're, they're controlling a middle. I, I can't imagine realtors being around that I, I mean, why, yeah. you know, when, when, you know, and, and for that matter, you know, potentially architects accept that, that if you're, you know, highly creative, yeah. then there's definitely a place. But if you just need somebody to, to do plans, it's you can just get SketchUp or yeah. you can just go buy a plan or you could just buy it in a virtual reality or thing or, or design it in 3D, you know, design, you know, you should be able to take a chunk here from this project and, yeah. you know, one can imagine the horror of what those things could look like. But... You know, I, I, I think that, you know, it, it's disruptive, you know, and oh, who would have thought that the largest taxi cab company in the world wouldn't own a taxi cab or the yeah. largest hotel company doesn't own one hotel. And how smart that is that there isn't the, the physical, you know, all of that inventory and workman's comp and, you know, Definitely. I mean, it's just, 
Incredible. Well, I think that that's yeah. going to push human beings into more of that creative side. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where I do. Because yeah. it's actually like the day to day. I kind of look at it and still, obviously, I think we don't have technology right now for the realtor side of the negotiation process. But equally, I can imagine that comes out in the next five, ten years. Yeah. You know, you yeah. put in what your highest price is, your lowest price. The computer algorithm between you and the owner is going to find yeah. the kind of best middle ground. Right, and then there, and then you're in a virtual reality conference yeah. from your house, and then your broker, whatever the broker does play a very valuable role in the negotiation yeah. and in maybe the, you know, that, but that's really what they should be doing. Like you don't need to be spending all your time driving around to sit at a showing or an open house. Yeah. That's like, a, I'm sure a hugely disproportionate, you know, waste of time. And, and then, you know, filling out a form, yeah. you know, so it's like somewhere in between where the skill is, is, you know, and, and the content, you'll never be able to control the content because someone's going to just do a, an Airbnb to real estate pretty soon. I mean, I mean, if I ever, I look, I, you know, I'm looking at, you know, Redfin or, you know, one of these sites, it's like, well, I'm going to look at the area and I'm going to look at the price and I'm going to look at the comps and I'm gonna look, you know, it's like, I don't need, but, but, you know, where, where realtors are very valuable is when they were really entrenched in a, like a place like Venice, which is very unique. And, you know, with people that really know what's happening, they know people, they know their community, they know their buildings, you know, almost everything I've bought was never on the market. Yeah. And things that, you know, I'll find for my clients that are not on the market because there's, there's inside knowledge. And that's something that, you know, a computer system, you know, likely won't, won't be able to develop. 100%. And that's really actually why I think social media is becoming so big and popular in a way. Because I'll have weird things now. Because I'm an English guy. I wear a suit every day. Red socks every day. Because weirdly in America, people like the English accent a lot. Yeah. And the English goes down very well. I mean, I sweat this time of year. Like the June blues here. But it's just mm. constant. Yeah. But I'll have situations, because we've got a big following on social, where I walk into an open house. Someone walks up to me. And they say, hi, Ed, how are you? And then in my head, I'm getting better at it, but I'm trying to calculate, have I met this person before or not? Because their interaction, it's almost like the face-to-face -face of seeing me on an Instagram story isn't the same as mm. having a discussion with me, right. but it's almost this weird gateway drug where they feel they understand me and know me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going from like zero to a hundred like that, mm -hmm. as opposed to like that warm-up conversation. So I think you're 100% right. It's almost the way that we consume and we communicate and all of those kinds of things mm -hmm. is changing so rapidly from going from letters to telephones now to kind of video mm -hmm. and having a brand. However, it's never going to replace the face-to-face -face and actually having a relationship with mm -hmm. someone, meeting someone, having a deep conversation, doing that kind of thing, but like knowing the properties that come on the market. And that's where I feel like human beings, as technology becomes more and more and more, that's going to be really where our true value is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I look at myself, I, I want to be current. I'm always first adopter, innovator of newest technology and material. I, I, but at the same time, I, the older I get, the, the, the more it comes down to the kind of simple values that yeah. can't be replaced. And it's still very new. And, and there is a lot of, um, you know, there, there is something very synthetic about that. Like, but you know, I, I, 
there are people I know that live in virtual reality. Like there, there's a name for them, and especially in Japan and others. My kids were telling me there's like a whole subset of culture that is their goal is to live in virtual reality and not leave it. And they and food is and they don't leave their house, and food is brought to them. And you know they could. Yeah, I mean it could be interesting. And you know I've always thought how how fascinating again if you're if your view changed, you know, it's like, you know, I, I'm going to be in the South of France right now, or I want to be in Bali, and, you know, and wow, it, we know how much that transforms the brain. Yeah. And, you know, through, through meditative space. Yeah, environmental yeah. effects. Yeah. So obviously, there, you know, there are, there are subtleties that are lost, yeah. and there, there, and there, I'm sure there will be attempts at getting, you know, smells and, textures and, you know, movement. I mean, we do funny things, you know, because the technology isn't there, but when a client's, like, moving and they're looking towards a waterfall or something, you know, we play music or... Like a water sound. Yeah, yeah. You know, but now we're starting to incorporate, you know, those objects. Like, we can put a fire in a fireplace, so, when you, you know, when you look at a fireplace, it animates, or a pool, you know, or a tree rustling. Yeah, because so. like from the agent's standpoint, the amount of clients that I have, I'll send them property details, they'll see the pictures which have been touched up, or they've been uh, wide angle lens, or they've kind of made the ceiling height look a lot higher than mm. it should be, mm -hmm. and then they walk into property and they're like, uh, right now obviously it's difficult, but I'll use the 360 camera, mm -hmm. that'll capture everything, which means I can send them like a Facebook upload, mm. and they can scroll around and look at like what they mm -hmm. want to look at, as opposed to what I'm trying to show you. Yeah, yeah. And that's where I think the, the change is massive yeah because the exploration of the person that's receiving the content as opposed to this is what i'm looking at this is what it's mm -hmm. going to be yeah um, i mean i have a, a friend who bought a house that we just visited and they they bought it you know they sight unseen they were in europe and they you know it was a limited opportunity and they just bought it you know they, it's me and couple that were yeah. about this i think the lenny kravitz house similarly mm -hmm. i think the guy that bought it had a mm -hmm. friend who had an event there, or yeah. one of his workers. Yeah. Worker called and said, this is the most incredible house we've ever been to, bought it the next day. Yeah. Which I think is, is definitely the way that it seems human beings are now evolving. It's more mm -hmm. and more global. Mm -hmm. And it's, okay, I can't be everywhere I want, but I want to kind of yeah. know what's what. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. I, think, well, I think we can literally go into like, <laughs> our chats for like the next Yeah, we didn't really get too much into our... Maybe we should try and do that as a specific uh, podcast another time, maybe. Literally uh, just talk about where we think VR is right, going, right. how it's going to affect your industry and the real estate industry. Or you have enough content here, you can oh. cut it up into uh, a couple Little different clips. segments. I mean, yeah, yeah. Brandon is listening right now, definitely. Because <laughs> that would be fantastic. Um, I just want to ask you a couple of little quick, quick round of questions just to yeah. finish up. Is there a favorite project you've ever done? The next one, yeah. It's, you kind of get bored of them in that way? Uh, well, I'm just always excited about the one that we're working on. Really? I mean, I, I mean, I'm. Yeah, you know, I'm really happy with the wing house that was representative of yeah. something that was like an achievement that could I do this? Could I get it through? Could I fly helicopters and um, buy a plane and yeah. convince my client to do this? We and, also do it in an ecological way. Right, and, and do it in a really sublime, you know, beautiful way that's integrated in the landscape and, you know, hit a lot of the things that I was successful about. Uh, you know, the, the projects that have, are different to things like, you know, can I do a big tilt-up concrete, you know, house or... Could I build a house, you know, all prefabricated, you know, and and deal with, you know, Indonesians and yeah. Germans and 
English and Caribbeans and, you know, make this all work, um, you know, I definitely don't take like the easy path, you know, it's always like, I want to do something that is challenging where they're generally, you know, no is the first kind of operative word that, that starts me, you know, pursuing, you know, the yes at the end of every no and, 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 and having the challenge, but not every project could be like that. I said that's your trend I'm missing a lot with the successful people that I meet who are successful in whatever they're doing, but they're good at it. Mm -hmm. They always like turning the no into the yes. Mm -hmm. It's not as if the no is in any way scary or it's always an element of like that's the challenge mm -hmm. to overcome. Yeah, there so may be a rebellious nature. I mean, same thing with you know what I'm doing now with with the atmosphere of water generation and winning the X Prize, which is yeah. you know, which was another ch global challenge and 97 teams from 28 countries, you know, competing for this one and a half million dollar prize to make 2000 liters of water from air in 24 hours using 100% renewable energy at a cost of less than two cents. So, you know, that was like, bring it on. Let's, 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 let's try to address this global Definitely. challenge. And, um, and we were the only team to win uh, to be able to do that and now it's how do we how do we you know really get there you yeah. know and productize it and develop it but those those kinds of challenges are wonderful and it's it's actually sometimes people ask me well wait how as an architect how are you like trying to address you know you know water scarcity yeah. I feel like it's exactly what ideally what an architect does is they're a generalist and and we work with a lot of specialists and a lot of consultants and and you know try to try to be creative problem solvers and we understand you know technology and science and engineering you know all these things in a little you know enough to 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 have a discourse with that language but we're generally you know more of a generalist rather than just a narrow specialist where oftentimes specialists just they, they see their own you know, segment in a very, very detailed manner. So with that reminds me of my wife a lot. So she has a swimwear line on Venice Boulevard. Mm. She's got like a little front house there. After she graduated from Fidham, she spent a couple of years working and designing swimsuits for okay. the company. Mm -hmm. The thing that pinged in her head was they had literally in downtown LA a warehouse that was filled with excess fabric that they weren't going to ever use, mm -hmm. which was crazy because Effectively, the environment that fashion works in, and I'm sure you're aware of mm -hmm. more than I am, that fashion is like the second largest polluter in the world, just mm -hmm. throwing things into the mm -hmm. landfill. But they would have to order a minimum of a thousand yards of fabric from the Chinese factory they're ordering it from, could not order anything less than that. Therefore, if they're only using 200 yards of fabric, there's 800 yards of fabric that she sits in that warehouse for two years and then they throw it into the landfill. And my wife was like, this is mental because there's a huge amount of people who are going to pay $150 for one of these bikinis, mm -hmm. and yet you've got the exact fabric that it's made from, and you're not going to do anything with it. So her whole business she started was buying excess fabric mm -hmm. from those brands, mm -hmm. creating her own patterns, her own styles with them, and then repurposing it. Mm -hmm. And it's now got to the point where she did that so much that she built an awesome following, where she mm -hmm. now takes the recycled fabric and she creates her own patterns with it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, hopefully that everyone works towards that kind of way. Yeah. It seems like there's an insane amount of just yeah. waste. Yeah, oh, it's incredible. And the amount of water 
that goes into yeah. dying and, and, and you know, it's a cumulative total of all these things. So. And bringing it to the local community, because with that you also have been involved in putting uh, vegetable gardens on the corner of uh, streets in Venice. Yeah, we have 88 urban farm boxes in Oakwood that we, that they pick up water from the back of this building um, that we make using solar energy. And then they, especially in the drought, nobody was adopting these. Yeah. And then we use Kids from Safe Place for Youth, which is a nonprofit up on Lincoln that helps kids find jobs that are aged out of the foster care system that are on the street. Um, so they pick up the water and then they water it. And, you know, it's, it, it, it also deals with getting people in their community out of their houses and meeting and especially where there's diverse communities, different socioeconomic, ethnic backgrounds and there's tensions around gentrification and you are all meeting around this planter or do, you know, doing something. It, 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 it's, it, that's why it's called Community Healing Gardens. It's about you know, using that as a vehicle to bring people together. And yeah. so, so it's been uh, it's been great to be involved with. And really big shout out to Safe Place for You because we've mm -hmm. actually done some work with them in the past where um, went in there, saw what they were doing, and actually it's an English lady who is in mm -hmm. charge of the day to day running of it. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the name, the name off the top of my head. But literally, one of our biggest investors in their building is a shared living. It's almost like a we work mm -hmm. living because mm -hmm. it's a huge amount of. Yeah. Like, oh, they're sitting there making this right, and there's space. one on Venice Boulevard, yeah. and 
you know, so it's like, uh, you know, we need to address it and not necessarily take everybody and push them, you know, somewhere else. Because mm -hmm. um, I look at that and I always try to think, if I put myself in these people's shoes, Venice would be the best place to go. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You're in a climate where right. on the street's not sure. bad, it's warm, you've got great amount of tourists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, one last question there okay. before we round up. Mm -hmm. I'm literally, yeah. literally spending the base chatting here. Um, developers and users. Mm -hmm. Which do you prefer working with? Is it a big mix? Is I don't really do a lot of work with developers. It's yeah. a rare, the rare that I do. It's almost all end users. End users. Yeah. And that's, I find that when I'm dealing with a lot of buyers, I become a bit more of like a therapist in certain ways. Mm -hmm. I'm taking them through a very stressful part right. of the thing. Right. Sure. I imagine with yours, it's a lot longer time scale. Yeah. And you're literally making decisions on absolutely everything with them. Yeah. Or you're kind of putting out your thing and then. Their right. Are you and at a stage cool. now where people are like, okay, it's almost your artwork, so therefore. Well, hopefully, yeah, it doesn't always work that way, but you know, there's it's 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 collaborative and iterative. It's it architecture is a balance between an art and a service. Yeah. Um. So, you know, again, maybe I just choose a more difficult path, you know, yeah. towards that, but it is rewarding I'm, I'm working with several fire victims you know it's a very you know it, it is a therapeutic process to like reconstruct their past and what they had and what they remember and how to but you know it feels like you're really helping there's something connected but yeah. my clients that live in their homes that love their homes and then they're really connected to their homes um versus you know developers you know very bottom line oriented typically and that's what they're more concerned with. So maybe, maybe you know, there's a balance between, you know, you don't have the personal connection. That's literally exactly yeah. what I was thinking. Because mm -hmm. I'm like, this person's gone through the process 25 times. Yeah. So it's not like you're doing a therapy role as much. Right, which would be a lot smarter from a standpoint of a business, Scale, yeah. but not necessarily from an art. Because, you know, I had a developer look at one of my projects and he was like, this is amazing. The first thing I would do is cut that, 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 you know. And yeah, and it's like, yeah, I appreciate your honesty. Like that's, Awful. like I couldn't get my, I couldn't get my guy to do that detail, so I would just cut it out, you know, because, yeah. you know, so it's it's like, yeah, I can, you just see exactly how you would just, you know, water it down. Not all developers are like that, you know. Yeah, there's, so you know, there are definitely developers that appreciate architecture, and there's most of that work with developers is not so much in single family houses, but in multifamily housing, which is, you know, where there's a lot of creativity right now in architecture. A lot of people are doing interesting, you know, buildings and yeah. there seems to be more, there, there's in, in a desire to make it wilder or more creative because it draws people to the housing project. Otherwise it's just, you know, hard to make a big, you know, box yeah. interesting. So it seems like, you know, a lot of LA architects are doing housing and there seems to be a huge, boom in housing and there's a lot of creative work being done in that. We, we don't really do that much in that. We're working in the hotel and the museum and um, we're doing like everything from this, you know, the World Surfing League trophy, you know, on a small scale to a launch control facility for Elon Musk at SpaceX, like different, you know, scale at Cape Canaveral. So, yeah, 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 I have a great team, yeah. Is that, yeah, because I, I think about it. What about that? Okay, last question, sorry. Is it yeah. Uh, building something that's more commercial is going to be used by thousands more people, mm -hmm. or building something that is like a home for someone that they're going to have more of a connection to, mm -hmm. but it's not exactly going to be enjoyed by 
set with people? Is yeah. there any preference? Um, not really a preference. It, 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 if, if the scale of the project still, you know, the commercial project could still get very personal. Like, uh, that's what I like about hospitality, yeah. you know, resort thing. It's, 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 it's residential in terms of feel, yeah. but it's larger in terms of commercial, you know, scale. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of an ideal juncture. It's at a really interesting place of different different climates and different cultures and different materials and um, so that that's like a really appropriate thing same, same with museums and you know those types of things they have a lot more kind of personality to them you know than just like an office like I do 10 improvements I, I try to do those you know rarely but they come up for people I know and I and, and I'm generally trying to really Make them more residential in feel, so that when they're in an office, they're not, you know, they're, 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 they're I often get hired to kind of really make something warm and and residential feel for their office. Get some soul. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that was David, mm -hmm. thank you so much for sitting down sure. with us. If anyone out there is watching, want to kind of see what you're next working on, things like that, you guys have an Instagram. Yeah. Uh, is it David Hertz underscore SEA? Think so. <laughs> and we have Facebook, and our website is studioea.com. Studio we have a blog that we're updating all the time. So you're getting more like kind of getting a huge amount of content out there. For you yeah, yeah. I've got you know some younger staff that is you know on like you know let's up. we have so much we don't have any lack of content okay. you know and and not not even digging into the archives but you know of things that happen so we're more actively you know posting and and and, and all that. okay awesome so yeah i'm not going to obviously have your email or your phone number mm -hmm. i'm sure you get right. a huge amount of phone calls people asking you personal questions and, mm -hmm. and then but if you guys want to go follow david hertz um sea um and thank you so much again david for coming on i actually would love to just meet for just not yeah. going in depth into go, things. Go for sure. Yeah. Your schedule. Yeah, absolutely. I should be broke my ankle four months ago. Oh. Rugby, and so now I'm back surfing in two weeks. So I'm good. Literally. Yeah, good. Inter